Good morning. Good, uh, good to see you today. A number of uh, Facebook users have recently posted pictures of themselves which are not very flattering. They've used a new app which projects what a person might look like in old age. Uh, you might have seen it. I think it's actually quite ingenious. Uh, the person looks remarkably like the person you know and love, but just 30 or 40 years older. And I've taken some photos, or I've got some photos, of some of our church members. <laughs> Brace yourselves. That is Nathan, how we know and love him. And we've put this through the app and... Uh, <laughs> that is Nathan in 30 or 40 years' time. He, he most certainly hasn't got his uh, father's Peter Pan gene, has he, really? And then there's uh, Dan. It's not often we see him in a floral dicky bow and braces, is it, really? And um, we put him through the app and... Uh, oh. Not bad. I was thinking, I was, I was trying to think of words there. Scary, yes. Uh, disturbing is another word I perhaps would use. Yes, but it's gone back two inches, have you noticed? And uh, there's another chin there as well and some wrinkles. And then there's Martin. Now, fair play, Martin celebrated his 70th birthday just a few weeks ago. So any 30 or 40 years added on to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just warning you in advance. That's all I'm doing, okay? <laughs> That's not bad. You know, he's a very sprightly 100-year-old there, isn't he? And I, I think he's got his own teeth. What are you going to look like at 100? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a good question. What are you going to look like when you're 110? That's right. Yeah, it's very good. I, I say I think he's got his own teeth there as well. Tim? Just wait for this. There we go. He still looks 26, but he's just got white hair now. But Debbie hasn't changed at all. I just don't get this. I just don't get this. What's it about you women? Do you want to see that again? There we go. That's Tim now. And that's uh, Tim in a few years' time. Now, I thought, it, fair's fair, I, I couldn't do that to all my friends and uh, not do it to myself. So that's me. Um, and in 40 years' time. <laughs> Julie says she can't wait. Uh, yes, I know, I, I recognise that I'm going to lose some of my good looks in that time. But uh, that's probably what I will look like. And for those uh, listening on podcast, there's a picture of me in 30 years' time, which I look remarkably like George Clooney. Anyway, a little peek into the future, but uh, a little bit chilling as well. What does our future look like? Not just what we might look like physically, but what will we be like as people? What will we be like in that length of time as followers of Jesus? Every scene in our lives is moving forward. It's a little bit like a movie in that sense, and the final scene is being shaped and determined by earlier scenes. 
the manner that we live our lives, by taking hold of, uh, taking hold of opportunities, and by our obedience to Jesus. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought for a little while. That the final scene is being shaped and determined by earlier scenes. The manner we live our lives, the taking hold of opportunities, and our obedience to Jesus now. Let's pray together, shall we? Okay. Let's pray. I tell you what, we'll pray when the music stops, shall we? <laughs> okay. Uh, Lord, we pray that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and understanding and wise minds, and obedient hearts as we study this passage today. Amen. There's quite an echo here, guys. Just thanks. Well, today is week six in our seven-week series on the seven churches that the book of Revelation was written to. And these seven churches were real life, uh, historic churches, churches that existed in the first century. And to these churches, the risen Christ speaks through a vision that he gave to his friend and disciple, um, John. And each church was uh, quite different to all of the others. Some of the churches were commended by Jesus, some were criticised, and some of the churches were both criticised and condemned. And these letters, these seven letters, give us a profound insight into what Jesus thinks is important in a church. And as we've seen uh, in recent weeks, his views on what impresses him in a church are not necessarily the same as what impresses us in a church. It doesn't always work that way. Uh, but before we read the passage together on our sixth church, the Church of Philadelphia, I want to give you three quick facts about this city. First of all, Philadelphia means brotherly love and celebrates the love that King Attalus, who founded the cities three centuries before, had for his brother. Secondly, the city of Philadelphia was known as the gateway to the east. And Philadelphia was um, strategically built for the purpose of missionary work. Not missionary work in the sense that we know it of spreading the gospel of Jesus, but to share the message of Greek culture and language and philosophy to other lands. And King Attalus believed that uh, the Greek philosophy was far superior to all other philosophy. And um, uh, the, he had this plan to export it to other towns and cities and, uh, and countries. And it was largely successful by AD 19, neighboring Lydians had entirely forgotten their own language. And the language had been replaced by Greek. And the third quick fact I want to give you about this uh, town city of Philadelphia is that it had a small, weak, and insignificant church, probably hidden away up some back street. And to this church, the risen Christ had a message. And uh, we're going to read that together now. I'll put the words also on screen for you in Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he, he opens, no one can shut, 
and what he shuts no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your throne. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now for a moment, I want you to try to use your imagination. I want you to place yourself in the shoes of Pastor Phil from Philadelphia. No, that is not his real name. I made that up, so don't look for it in a Bible dictionary for him. That Pastor Phil has post being dropped through the door. And that morning, he has bills, more bills, junk mail, a bank statement. And hey, what's this? He saw the postmark. Patmos, and his heart must have missed a beat. He'd already heard on the grapevine that other churches had received a letter from the risen Lord. And this was Philadelphia's moment of reckoning. Heart beating faster, he was reminded of how great churches, churches like Ephesus and Sardis, churches that were big and active and organized and successful and theologically switched on and influential and churches with great reputations, how they were left deflated after receiving their letters, having read what Christ had said about them. It's a little bit like getting your A-level results through the post, already having heard that everybody in your class, far cleverer than you, has failed miserably. Well, Pastor Phil must have thought that if such churches as Ephesus and Sardis came in for criticism from the Lord, then his little church in Philadelphia, which was neither big nor influential, was neither rich nor successful, would receive a much sterner rebuke from the Lord. And that morning, I can well imagine that he read his junk mail and his bank statement even before turning to this letter. And he opened the letter with fear and trembling. Couldn't believe his eyes. The Lord had no complaints. Was he missing a page? Had he left a page in the envelope? Nope, it was all there. You see, the astonishing thing about the letters of the risen Christ to the seven churches is that only two churches for which the Lord has no condemnation at all are those churches, if judged by modern standards, would be considered failures. Smyrna, the church which was poverty-stricken and persecuted, and this church at Philadelphia, which was powerless. In our success-oriented age, I think both churches would have been considered on the verge of redundancy. They would have been seen as frail and weak and insignificant. And then Jesus introduces himself in verse 7 using these words. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. 
What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. It's quite fascinating the way that Jesus introduces himself to all seven churches. And he introduces himself quite differently to those churches in a way which is relevant within the experience of the church that he is writing to. For example, a few weeks ago we looked at the church at Smyrna. The church at Smyrna was the persecuted church. And Jesus introduces himself to that church as the, the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again. Just think about it, the way that Jesus introduces himself there. All that they were going through, all that they were questioning within themselves. And essentially what Jesus was saying, I, I know what you're going through. I see it. I get it. Nothing catches me by surprise. I was before and I'm after and I hem you in. I know everything about you. I know all that you're suffering. I know you completely. Jesus said, I'm the one who died and rose again. Defeated death. I've been there. I've taken the sting out of it. And you might be persecuted to the point of death, but death isn't the end. So just in the way that he introduces himself to these churches, it means so much to them. And here to the church of Philadelphia, Jesus essentially says two things. He tells them what he is. He says that he is holy and true. In other words, he's the real deal. And then he tells them what he can do. He says that he holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. In other words, he's not only the real deal, but he is also the one who is in absolute control. And I can well imagine how that brought great comfort and consolation to this church of Philadelphia, and indeed to churches of every age and every place throughout the world ever since. You know, to know that he is the real deal, that he is God incarnate, and also that he is in absolute control of our lives and the life of this church. Does that fill your hearts with gladness? Well, tell your faces. That's, that's an incredible truth that we can hold on to, even in our darkest days. And the message to the church at Philadelphia is this. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, if Jesus tells you something once, you need to listen in. But here we have the same message in the first two verses to this church uh, about open doors that the Lord has for them. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. What on earth could that mean? Let's go back just a few minutes. We were talking a few moments ago about the strategic position of this church in this town, this city of Philadelphia. It was a gateway to the east, founded for the missionary purpose of exporting Greek culture, language and philosophy to other cities and countries. And I believe that the open door that Christ is speaking about to the church is an open door of missionary opportunity to them, that they were strategically placed in order to take the message of Jesus to neighbouring towns and villages. Now, the Apostle Paul speaks about open doors quite a lot, actually, in his uh, letters. For example, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, he says, But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door of effective work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me. Now, we've seen this before, haven't we? And we see it again here. There are two things that go hand in hand. 
On the one hand, open door for effective ministry, and on the other hand, opposition. And those two very often are together, and we'll come back to that again in a moment. In uh, 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul writes of when he went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. He found that the Lord had opened a door for him. In other words, it wasn't Paul's ingenuity. It wasn't up to him and what he was trying to do, but it was the Lord himself who was just opening the door. In Acts 14, verse 27, Luke tells us about Paul and Barnabas coming back from their first missionary journey to Antioch. And it says there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul, when he writes to the Colossian Christians to, for them to pray for him, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Now, on many occasions, and there are other occasions as well, that Paul speaks of this just open door of opportunity that the Lord was making for him. On one occasion, in Acts chapter 16, he speaks of the reverse of that, that he had set himself to go into a region called Bithynia and the Holy Spirit stopped him going. And then the following night, he received a, a vision from a man from Macedonia who says, come over here, come and help us. He is the God who both opens doors and closes doors. And I don't know, you might have experienced that in your life as well. Those times when God has just opened a door for you, sometimes unexpectedly. Other times you, you've been going one particular direction and the Lord just closes that door for whatever reason. Sometimes we are left confused at the time and it's only later that we find out. But sometimes the Lord does that, that the Lord shuts the door as he did with Paul, only to open a better and more fruitful door somewhere else. Uh, John Lancaster, how many of you know John Lancaster, know of him? Is it any of you? Oh my word, I, I can see those who have been uh, around in Elim circles uh, quite a while. John is now, well, a very, very godly man, great, uh, great pastor for many years. He's now in his 90s. He writes each month uh, also for the Direction magazine. And he wrote some time ago these words, and I found them very challenging, and I put them on screen for you. How often we slam our shoulders against closed doors in determined but vain effort to achieve our own evangelistic programs and only succeed in bruising ourselves. How often with the bent wire of our own ingenuity we try to pick locks that Christ has closed. When will we learn that he is the director of evangelism and the Lord of the harvest? <laughs> Isn't that incredible? You know, just to soak those words in for a few moments. And if I'm really honest with myself, I find myself on occasions in those words. Those times when I have tried to do things in my own strength, in my own ability. Times when I've tried to second guess God's will. Uh, times when, to use John's words, when I've tried to use that, uh, that bent wire of my own ingenuity to attempt to pick locks of doors that Christ has closed or is closing. Um, I, I, I really thank God that he is a God who opens doors and closes doors in our lives. He's done so in my life, and I know in this church on many occasions. I thank God that he has closed doors in what I planned to do with my life. When I had career's advice as a 16-year-old, 
uh, being a pastor wasn't in my top 100 choices. It wasn't in my top 1,000, actually, of how to spend my life. It wasn't even on my radar. For that matter, neither was being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus. But I thank God that he opened the door for me to serve him in the way that I do, and I've been a pastor now over half my life. I thank God before coming to Tamworth that uh, he opened the door for Julie and me to plant a new church in a place called St. Melons on the outskirts of Cardiff in 1989. And uh, it was a great privilege and an opportunity to do that. Three years later, um, the Lord closed that door, not of the church, but of us to stay there. And as much as we wanted to stay there, almost kicking and screaming, please, Lord, allow us to stay here. We knew that we knew that we knew that our time was up and that the Lord had someone else in mind to build on the foundations, the spiritual foundations which we had um, laid there. And the person who came in after me did an absolutely wonderful job. Definitely God's man for that season. I couldn't have done what he did. And he did a great job. At the same time, the Lord opened the door here for us in Tamworth. We initially weren't very sure about whether it was for us or not. But by God's grace, in some small way, he has used us in this church over the years. And we thank God for that. As a church leadership, I thank God that on occasions the Lord has saved us from ourselves. Closing doors that he didn't want us to walk through direct us to other doors that he had planned and purposed for us. And uh, if any of you have read Grace and Glory recently, you'll know some of those amazing doors down through the last quarter of a century that the Lord has opened and closed for us. Can I ask you this morning, in your life, what are the doors which the Lord is opening in your life presently? Are you aware of those doors? Is it something that the Lord maybe has been speaking to you about? Are there doors being closed in your life? I want you this morning just to rest in the fact that he is the one with the keys. He is the one who opens and closes doors in our lives. And our part, and we have a part in this, is to seek his face, to hear his voice, to know his heart, to be obedient to his will, and to courageously walk through those doors that he is opening for us. Let's move on. C. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though are not, they are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Well, when Pastor Phil read these words that God was opening the door of opportunity for them, I'm sure he was excited. I would have been excited because these were the words not just of any old person. These are the words of Jesus himself, that Jesus is opening this door of opportunity for them. Wow. But then he was confronted with two realities, two obstacles, if you like. First of all, his church had little strength. They weren't a flourishing church like Sardis. They weren't a, a big, impressive, influential church, but they were this church in a back street, probably, in Philadelphia. They didn't have much going for them. And the second problem is that they were being opposed, they were being persecuted by the Jewish community. 
And we came across this a few weeks ago when we studied this church at Smyrna. Um, the Jews like being referred to as the assembly of God. But Jesus turns that around and he calls them not the assembly of God that they like to be referred as, but actually you're, you're the synagogue of Satan, he says. And it's Satan's work that they were performing as they persecuted the church. But again, don't we see the same, this same thing? Open doors for effective ministry and opposition go hand in hand. Last week we uh, looked at the church of Sardis and uh, we, we asked then, why wasn't the church at Sardis uh, receiving hardships and persecution and opposition like all of the other churches? Why was that? And the answer that we came out with was that they were no threat to the, the kingdom of darkness. They were so complacent and apathetic, they were essentially not worth persecuting. But where a church intrudes upon Satan's territory, where Christians are getting fired up, where they are fervent in their witness, where they are zealous in prayer, where people are getting saved, where God's name is exalted, there is nearly always opposition. And the church at Philadelphia knew these things. Paul writes some great words to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's funny, you know, I've, I've never seen that verse etched in, in bronze and put on somebody's dining room wall. I've not even seen a fridge magnet of it. And none of you actually said amen when I read that verse out. It's funny, isn't it? You know, you can read some verses out in a, in a church gathering and you can get a great amen. But everyone who lives, wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not so. Isn't it amazing that God so often chooses weak and foolish things of this world in order to bring honour to his name and in order to um, serve the purposes of his kingdom in this world. And maybe you look at yourself today and you are saying, I've got nothing to offer. What can I do? I'm weak and I'm foolish. I've got... Uh, I, 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 just, I'm a very simple person, I've got a simple faith, what can I do? Well, if that's you this morning, I would say that you are much further ahead than the person who says, God, I bet you are glad I, uh, you've got me on your team. <laughs> you are much further ahead than that person. Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humble, and whoever humble himself will be exalted. And when we recognize how little we are, when we recognize how small and insignificant our abilities are, then at that moment we give God opportunity to show His strength and His power. Yes? The Church of Philadelphia had little strength, but they had a great God. And I would say that a little church with faith in a great God is far more useful than a big church without any faith. And God has placed before this church in Philadelphia an open door. Philadelphia might have been uh, small and insignificant, but they had other things in their favour. In verse 8, they kept his word. In other words, they have been obedient to all that Christ had revealed. Um, they had not denied his name. Verse 8 again. They were loyal. They were faithful. 
Verse 9, they'd endured patiently, showing a deep trust in Jesus. Now, many Christians today um, have that conversation of what is a successful church. And that's a very, very good question. Some people believe that a successful church is to have a full church on a Sunday morning, to have lots of bottoms and seats. But I would suggest to you that that is not necessarily the best spiritual gauge of a church. I think perhaps the better spiritual gauge of a church would be found in these three words, obedience, faithfulness, and trust. And Jesus here has some encouraging things to say to this church of Philadelphia. Firstly, he says that the Lord, the Lord promised is to keep them from a time of great trial that is to come on the whole world. Secondly, he encourages them to hold on to what they have. Uh, and in doing so, they will make sure that no one will take their crown, meaning that no one will cause them to lose their great reward one day. That all faithful Christians will receive a reward which is symbolized by a crown. Remember what Paul writes in his uh, last letter to Timothy, actually the last chapter of the last letter that he wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me a what? A crown, a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, but not only to me, to all who have longed for his appearing. Now, I don't actually believe that when we get to heaven, we'll actually have literal crowns. What good will that be in heaven other than to show it off? And that's not permitted in heaven anyway. You see, I believe that the greatest reward that we will have is not any gift, it's the giver. It's the giver. It's Jesus himself, to be in his presence, to receive that welcome, good and faithful servant, well done. Come into the place I prepared for you. And Jesus says of this church that he will make them a pillar in the temple of God, that he will write on them the name of his God and the city of God, the new Jerusalem, and that Christ would write on them his own new name. Now, that imagery, I don't know if you've ever read that before, very confusing. What's it mean? It's a very good question. When you find out, please let me know. I'll tell you what I think. And, you know, you're okay to disagree with me on this. In the cities of that time of Asia Minor, priests from various religions um, were honoured for a life faithfulness to their religion by having a new pillar erected in the temple where they'd served. And on this pillar was uh, inscribed the priest's name and the name of, the, of his father. So I think that Jesus is just saying to the Christians here, he's reminding them of a coming day when they too will be honoured for faithful service. I think there might be a, a, an Old Testament reference here as well. There was a time Old Testament, when uh, Moses, uh, God spoke to Moses about the blessing that his brother Aaron and the other priests must pronounce over the people of Israel. And God said, they shall put my name on the people of Israel. And the idea here is that God somehow will mark his people, that everyone will know who they belong to. And I think that that's possibly 
going on in this too. Guys, if you'd like to come back, we'll finish in a moment. But I want to come back to right to the start, the very thing that um, we spoke right at the beginning. After showing you all of those photographs, which we projected up on screen of what we might look like in uh, 30 or 40 years' time. And I asked the question then, what does our future look like? Not what we might look like physically, but what will we as people, as followers of Jesus, be like? And I suggested that our lives are a little bit like a movie. Every scene is moving to the final scene. The plot is developing. The final scene is being shaped and determined by earlier scenes. Now, each one of us, every single day that we're alive, God will open doors of opportunity for us to serve Him. Doors of opportunity for us to walk through, just like He did at this church in Philadelphia. And each door will lead to another, then to another, then to another. And our future will depend on the decisions that we make today and the way that we make the most of opportunities that the Lord is presenting to us. just want to put that on screen for you. What I am today was shaped by what I did yesterday. Who I am tomorrow will be informed by what I do today and which door, open doors I am prepared to faithfully walk through. Just look at that for a moment. When I read those words, I was challenged by them. I hope you are too. What I am today was shaped by what I did yesterday. Who I become tomorrow will be informed by what I do today and which open doors I am prepared to faithfully walk through. I ask you this morning again, what are those doors in your life that you know, that you know that you know that the Lord is opening for you, but you've been too timid and lacking in trust to walk through? What doors is the Lord closing in your life just now? Some doors that we need to walk through will take courage and trust. The kind of trust that uh, Peter had when Jesus bid him come out of the boat that stormy night when Jesus walked on the water. That kind of trust is uh, never an easy thing to get out of the boat, to face the elements around us and to trust in Jesus. But for some of you here this morning, I believe that that is a, a very relevant question. What are those doors that the Lord is opening in my life? What is the Lord speaking to me at the moment? In which way am I not being obedient to Him? In fact, some of, uh, for some of you, the, there are doors before you that the Lord isn't going to open for you. In fact, His word to you is that He is inviting you to come and open those doors yourself. What am I talking about there? Well, without um, stealing the thunder of next week's sermon on the, on the church at Laodicea, the Lord said to that church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he, he with me. And you see, for some of you maybe this morning, you're someone who's been on the edge of the Christian faith for some time. You're getting to know Christians, you knowing the message of Christ, and uh, the Lord is saying to you, it's time now that you opened that door. The handle is on the inside. It's not something I will do for you, but it's something that I want you to do. 
You know what the Christian life is like. You know the reality of God. But it's not something that you have ever done for yourself to open your life fully to Jesus. And that might apply to some of you here this morning. We're going to sing a song in a moment. And it's a, it's, it's a great song. It's a reflective song. And as we sing this song, I want you to make that appropriate response. If you are someone who has never opened the door in your heart to Jesus, you've always held back. I want you this morning to say, Lord, okay. This morning is the morning. I will truly open that door widely to you. Come into my life, Lord. I tell you what, there's no greater nor better decision that you could ever make with your life than to do that. It will change everything. For some of you, you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time and you know that there are doors that he is opening and closing in your life and he's just looking for that sense of trust and for you to put your trust in him and to go with him. Please let us stand. The, the words of the song are, Jesus be the center, be my source, be my light. Jesus be the center, be my hope, be my song. Be the fire in my heart. Be the wind in these sails. Be the reason that I live. Jesus, be my vision. Be my path. Be my guide. Make this your prayer this morning, please.